0: Welcome to Rooster Radio, the podcast where we talk to interesting people doing amazing things. I'm Andrew Montessi with James Begley. This is a special episode where James and I donned a collared shirt and wandered into the Supreme Court of South Australia to spend an hour with the Honourable Chris Caracas, Chief Justice of South Australia. The Chief Justice breaks down many misconceptions about judges, the justice system and the law. He's personable, approachable, progressive and tech savvy. He communicates in plain English even the most complex legal issues. It all forms part of his mission to make justice inclusive and accessible to all. Such values were instilled on the family farm in Port Lincoln, where the Chief Justice was one of ten children to Greek migrants. His mother had been involved in the Communist Party in Greece, but her influence was around social values more than politics. The Chief Justice talks about his path into law and what he learned in the early years of practice from some of the most influential people in the profession. The Chief Justice also shares his views and insights across a range of issues, including the relationship and tension that exists between government and the courts, PR for the justice system, innovating justice, the training and application process for judges, breaking down a judge's decision-making process, and much more. Enjoy this chat with the fascinating Chief Justice of South Australia, the Honourable Chris Caracas.
1: Honourable Chris Caracas, Chief Justice of South Australia, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Now, we have done a little bit of research and we understand that you're one of ten. Yes. What was it like at dinner time growing up in your family when you were younger?
2: Dinner times were about the best time. That was the terrific thing about being in a big family. Um, It was that sense of family. Everyone enjoyed each other's companies. Uh, We had common experiences and obviously as we uh, developed common uh, values, uh, but we all enjoyed each other's company. It was a European household, obviously enough, so eating together, breaking bread together was a terrific time. How do you find um, (coughs) your own voice in one of
1: 10, 12 people?
2: Uh, That wasn't difficult. Um, As I said, although we had much in common, we all had our own strengths. Um, My particular strength was more academic. I grew up on a small farm, I've got to say. Uh, I Mm. had um, a a brother immediately, uh, two years younger than me, one of the twins, who was much better in sport and in uh, manual dexterity, and that was his strength. And what were
1: the like rituals associated with, with dinner time? We're always a bit fascinated with the dinner time. It's a bit of a, <laughs> a symbolic moment in a, in a family's uh, day and week and and, yeah. and culture.
2: Oh, I'm glad you are. You're right <laughs> to be. Uh, we had a large rectangular kitchen with a long rectangular table sort of following the, the sides of the, the the kitchen. There was a uh, wood stove um, on one side uh, and there was always a kettle on it. There was always a pot of food um, on it. Uh, Mum would busy herself with the, the, the cooking. Everyone would have to pitch in with the plates and the bread and all, all that sort of thing. Um, we had our fixed places. It was animated. We we're all talking. It was always a a very happy time. Even before formal dinner time, one of my really fond memories is coming home from school with the three or four kids who are about my age because my family's in two litters mum used to call (laughs) and and I was the eldest of the second but we'd come home from school and the baker would have delivered the bread in a van and the fresh bread would be there and we'd demolish you know a whole loaf with butter mum's Homemade jams, oh, cream that she'd got from milking the cow. And I mean, they're, they're just the best, members, yeah. the best members.
0: And how did uh, your Greek parents find
2: their way to Port Lincoln? Mm. That's a good question. Um, my grandfather came from the little island of Vicaria to South Australia in 1928. You've got to remember that at that time the pattern of migration was different to the post-war migration pattern. Uh, People from southern Europe would go to the United States mostly but also to Australia, work for a year or a couple of years, take back the money, stay back on the subsistence peasant farming in Europe and then do it again. And that was my grandfather's idea. Unfortunately, he hit the Depression, so there was not work to be found. He ended up walking through uh, Eyre Peninsula, going from farm to farm, trying to find uh, work and eventually ended up in Port Lincoln where he established a pig farm just out on the outskirts of Port Lincoln on Proper Bay and it wasn't until uh, eight years later that one of his older sons joined him and then ten years later the rest of the family, he left his wife, Uh, pregnant and saw his youngest son, he had eight children, uh, when he was uh, close to 10 years of age. So that was an extraordinary story.
1: Coming from Europe and Greece, I mean, it just must have seemed like, you know, the
2: moon and so isolating. I mean, what a different world. Yeah, it was. Um, My parents come from Ikaria, which is a fairly rugged place. It has its own rugged beauty, but it's not... Lush. It's got mountains and there's pine forests that fall to the sea uh, down the, the mountain slopes, but not overly green. And in a funny way, uh, they, the people from my carrier, really liked the west coast because they saw some similarities. I mean, obviously, you're talking about mallee and gum instead of pine trees, but in terms of the rockiness of it um, and the coast, and so they took to it and they they really liked it. Um, it wasn't as alienating as going into some of the uh, urban inner urban areas and working in factories, which mm. was completely alien. And that's what the post-war, post-war migrants faced. I was mm. really
0: interested to read that your mother was involved in the Communist Party in, yes. in Greece. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm interested to find out, what, what did she teach you in terms of instilling values in those early years? Well, I, th- I think...
2: Um, uh, all of the children um, obtained a a strong sense of social justice just by osmosis, without any direct political discussion. I was thinking about this, um, because we all share a a common social justice, what some people might call progressive outlook on politics rather than a conservative outlook. And I think that came uh, from the way in which we saw our parents interact with the Port Lincoln community, the fact that community was important to them, the fact that being well regarded by the community, making a contribution to the community was important, the way in which my family didn't differentiate in the respect, at least, that they showed all sections of the community. Um, uh, uh, For example, I remember that um, my parents worked alongside uh, Indigenous workers in the abattoirs and fish factory, we would have them come past the home from time to time, Um, sometimes um, uh, uh, drinking and with methylated spirits, but uh, my mum's response was to take the methylated spirits and to come out with some old wine, which uh, they had. But the point about that is that there was never anything judgmental in uh, my mother's reaction to it. It was always very practical and pragmatic, which really characterised a lot of her life. When I got older, she started to actually talk to me about politics, and it was a sort of communism from really the Second World War, shortly post-Second World War era, because in Port Lincoln, she wasn't as politically active and not as connected with the changes that happened to the left-wing movement after the world, after world, uh, the Second World War. So I was given these old um, Soviet Today magazines <laughs> to read and um, uh, so you know, that, that was the start of it. Yeah.
1: What was the moment when you were conscious of, I guess, this appetite and ambition in, in the world of law and, you know, at least going to uni and, and following your academic path? Um,
2: I... Uh, It it arose out of the social justice sense that we were given Um, and uh, I, at school though, was more interested in the sciences in terms of study Um, and I was thinking of doing a science degree followed by a law degree. My um, uh, older brother gave me some good advice that I'd get bored if I tried doing two degrees so I realised that I didn't want to work as a scientist as much as I enjoyed studying it. But I did, by that stage, have the idea that I wanted to act for working people, um, basically, in the law. Um, My mother's family uh, knew Elliot Johnson, the senior Adelaide lawyer, then Queen's counsel, then judge, and he'd visited in Port Lincoln, so I had some... didn't really understand what it meant to work as a lawyer, but I had some notion that... Um, uh, he was well regarded because of what he would do as a lawyer for working people. So that that's why I decided to do that, uh, to enter the law.
0: So in those early years, was did you have any kind of, I guess, in terms of uh, lawyers' ambition to you know climb to partner or were, or like what? I'm always interested because having known quite a few lawyers, um, some of them are very ambitious from a career perspective, but what was kind of the long-term
2: view for you as a young lawyer at the time? I I never really had a uh, long-term view. You've got to realise I came from Port Lincoln. The only person in the family had any sort of higher education apart from my older brothers and sisters as they moved through was my mother's brother who was a... um, a PhD in history. Um, I didn't have any contacts in the law. I just wanted to be able to get work as a lawyer mm. uh, and do that. Um, and so I, I always just took it a day at a time. I, what I found, I at, at law school I studied the law and I tried to see... Um, legal principles in terms of whether they were left or right, progressive or Mm. conservative, which was really silly because even the law of evidence, which is an intensely practical thing, I tried to analyse in that way. When I entered the law, though, I realised, as all lawyers do, that these things are legal skills which you deploy to get the best result you can for your client. And so what I soon found is that I really liked the challenge of using these skills to get that best result and I got enormous amount of personal and professional satisfaction out of doing a good job and then they became the drivers for me uh, and I just did that day to day. But I do remember a few years out when I was with the Legal Services Commission and I was doing a lot of work before the magistrates at that time and it occurred to me one day, wow, wouldn't it be terrific if one day I can actually become a magistrate. And that was the wow. first um, sort of sense of wanting to go somewhere.
1: What was the uh, legal landscape like at that moment, at that point in time, the strengths and weaknesses, the key players, what did it look like?
2: Um, I think that when I entered the profession, it was actually a very good time to enter the profession Um The uh, legal profession in Adelaide, probably like most cities, was conservative for decades, but things started to change in the 1960s. Um, The appointment of Dr Bray as Chief Justice reflected that change, that that incipient change, and then his appointment uh, then brought much change with it because he set about um, bringing... Uh, the underlying values of the law that inform the law in touch with modern developments. Um, uh, And um, the judges who followed him, or many judges who followed him, continued that. And so by the time that I um, entered the profession in the early 80s, there was a whole new generation coming through. There were many more women in the law, Um, the... uh, Increased, you know, the approaching 50% and then exceeding it of women graduates, it sort of was well on the way by the time I went through. Um, there was work. Um, the Legal Services Commission had been recently created. Community legal centres were being created. Um, at one stage, because there was a glut of graduates, many moved out into the suburbs and set up law firms in the suburbs. So there was. Quite an explosion of Sounds access. To, yeah, it was, mm-hmm. and access to justice, and people were moving from, as I did, from something like the commission to a suburban legal um, practice, and so it was very exciting. Um, since then, I think the pendulum has perhaps swung away a, a bit big with um, the relative defunding of uh, legal aid um, and um, cost pressures, which have. Uh, increase the cost of cost of justice, but no, it was a, it was a really exciting time. We were taking on legal challenges. I at the Legal Services Commission, with Sid Tillmouth, who was then the director, would challenge the decisions of prison authorities in punishments that they imposed on prisoners' movements. Of uh, prisoners, we were challenging government decisions um, uh, not to release people who'd been uh, detained indefinitely. Um, Uh, um, moving on all sorts of fronts, extending uh, liability and negligence. Um, It was a very exciting time.
1: Were there any colourful characters uh, floating around that that stick in your mind?
2: I I really missed uh, some of the more colourful characters, particularly in the criminal uh, law, people like Jack Elliott, um, Frank Moran... Um, really had gone out of practice or, Frank, in Frank's case, became a judge shortly after I joined the profession. Um, and so, uh, but I heard many of the stories about <laughs> them. I you know, spoke to them on occasion. Uh, so that changed. Um, and uh, from soon after I joined the uh, profession, um, standards, um, expectations, not so much standards, expectations increased as well. Um, cases became more complex, so um, the you know uh, time of the great orator who could just swing a case on the um, with the silver voice it started to change, and you you had to um, uh, do much more research, um, understand forensic scientific complexes um, much more. So I uh, I came again into the profession at, at that time of change as well.
0: In those early years, who were the influential people for you and what was it about those people that, that really stood out?
2: Yeah. Well, undoubtedly um, the greatest influence was Elliot Johnson in the two years I worked with his firm and then I kept in touch with him after uh, that. Um, w- uh, why? Because he was a technical lawyer who was really learned in the law um, uh, but, but um, as I say, a technical and intellectual lawyer but who spent his time working out how to best use those skills to advance the cause of working people. And he did it not by suggesting radical leaps in the approach mm-hmm. to law but uh, finding that little point of distinction that allowed, uh, that got around a legal principle that might have been against the success of his mm. client. So he, he, by far, was the uh, strongest influence. Um, but there were um, many others. Jeff Eames, who later became a Court of Appeal judge in Victoria. Sid Tillmouth, who's now a district court judge at the Legal Services Commission, were great influences. Um, Lindy Powell... Um, Uh, and others at Johnston Withers-McCuskin when I worked um, there. um, um, When I went to the bar, um, working with Murray uh, Shaw um, uh, was a huge influence. And Murray, together with Michael Abbott, had worked on the Splat Royal Commission and that was really the case that brought about the importance of um, forensic scientific evidence, and exposed the pseudoscience that had been involved in that for a long time. Um, And uh, since then we've had massive advances in forensic science and uh, the demands on criminal lawyers to be able to understand it and challenge it uh, when necessary. Speaking of influences, were there also
0: any any cases in those early years that perhaps
2: shaped you or had a particular impact on you? Um, The... Early cases I did at the Legal Services Commission with um, uh, Sid Tillmouth that introduced me to administrative law challenging government decision making uh, were important because it showed how um, the rule of law uh, was effective against government. Um, and over again over the years since I've been in practice, the understanding of administrative and public law principles has increased. Uh, enormously, uh, the numbers of lawyers working in those areas has increased. Um, that early experience led me to um, my position as Solicitor General, where that is what you do day in, um, day out. So um, that uh, those series of cases were very important. Um, then, when I went to the bar, many of the criminal appeal cases that I did. Um, Gave me, taught me particular, uh, another set of skills. I, I um, people have asked me this before about particular standout cases, mm. and I don't <laughs> have, and I, or at least I can't easily bring them to mind because I very quickly dump a case once it's mm. done and turn my mind to the, the next one. That's
1: interesting to know. Yeah. You've come from a, a farm in Port Lincoln. You've studied. You've you've come through and worked for the Legal Services Commission. Um, you know, there seems to be real passion and a, and a desire to impact um, through law. Were there ever moments in those early years where you then questioned the reality of the job and whether or not it was something that you wanted to continue to pursue? Or did the passion continue to grow?
2: No, I, um, I never had those doubts about it. But uh, But, again, you've got to remember, and most lawyers would understand this, you you do this case by case, and uh, you don't really um, spend a lot of time looking at the broad picture. You do that in your extracurricular, uh, or in your um, work, say, with the Law Society, or in making submissions on law reform in one capacity or another, but... Um, it's in the nature of the common law that it develops case by case and as a lawyer you throw yourself into a particular case. You want to make and, and, and make sure that you do the best job you can in each of those uh, cases. Um, it's really uh, when, you are, when you're appointed to a court like this court that you get a greater opportunity to influence the way in which, the direction in which the law might develop but even then, uh, it's very incremental. Um, for good reason, um, law is very hard to turn around. It's like a huge shit and you can work as hard as you like, put your shoulder to the wheel as hard as you like, but you're only ever going to have a very small, you know, a fraction of a degree change in, in, in
1: course. Just returning to that social justice, I guess I grew up in a household that had a very strong sense of social justice. Mum was a teacher and um, it felt to me like as growing up that that was a strong sense of Australia and a big part of Adelaide. Um, Do you still feel that society uh, has those same sort of views on social justice or do you think there's been a a changing uh, occur?
2: I think there is a um, a change I mean there is as everyone sort of recognizes a pendulum that swings um, I'm an optimist though about the progress of society and I think that it's always getting uh, better even if it's two steps forward one step uh, back um, I think um, that you know when from when uh, probably from the late 80s, on, there's been a trend towards um, self-interest rather than, and and personal advancement, rather than advancement of the community. Those two things, of course, aren't mutually exclusive, but at different times one is given emphasis um, over the uh, other. Um, uh, But then again in more recent times, I think as common challenge, as people face common challenges, um, energy, climate change, um, unemployment because of technological change, uh, the challenge to living standards in the West because of the um, developing world wanting to take its place. As we face these common challenges, then people soon realise that individual solutions alone aren't going to work so they start to think more about collective uh, action and I think we are actually seeing a change back towards uh, that now Um, again with uh, setbacks as uh, for example um, right wing boats particularly in some European places have shone but um, overall I'm I'm an optimist so I think um, we'll continue to work collectively
0: to, again I guess progress your story um, for a, an absolute layman can you describe for us how one comes to into into a position of becoming a, a chief justice how does how does it, how does it actually work yeah. do you have to network
1: like do you have to, <laughs> do you have to hand out some business guides or? <laughs> That
2: that's a that's a really good question because there's an important policy debate to be had about how judges are selected, uh, but we don't really discuss it um, as much as we perhaps should. Um, The first thing to say is that in Australia and other common law places, unlike Europe, judges are appointed from the profession, and it might be from government lawyers or people in the private profession. Now, that's And people become lawyers after getting their degree and doing some practical legal training and then they're just a lawyer and then after they've been a lawyer for a while they become a judge. Now, in European civil code systems, um, after doing some basic common law study, uh, lawyers go off into two streams, one where they want to become private practitioners and the other where they want to enter the judiciary uh, because um, there being an inquisitorial system in Europe, there are many more judges because they do a lot more of the legwork in terms of deciding a case than um, practitioners do. So that's the first point to make and that is that we don't have a um, training for judges like they do in Europe. So query whether or not there should be Mm. some greater training before you actually take your job as a judge. But having said that, the way it works here is that um, you um, prove your worth in the profession by the cases you do, the reputation you earn, and then it's for the government to appoint the judges. Um, uh, Magistrates, which are the um, um, court level that does claims only up to $100,000 and does some of the less serious criminal matters, uh, actually are appointed after a request for expressions of interest, followed by a panel comprising the Chief Magistrate and other judicial members, Um, and then the attorney simply reviews their recommendations and makes an appointment. District Court, which is our Intermediate Court, and the Supreme Court, which is the highest court in South Australia, um, the attorney appoints uh, directly after consulting a range of uh, people, including the chief justice. Um, so um, in one sense, you could say that becoming a judge is a political mm. decision. Um, and there's no doubt that the in the history of appointments, um, uh, there are some lawyers who will be seen as similar in their underlying values to the government in power who will be appointed and others whose underlying values are thought to be uh, more similar to another party and won't be appointed until that party. There there are some um, uh, that are simply standouts and who will be appointed no matter what. But the important thing is that there is a convention that, to my knowledge, has never been breached in South Australia there are some perhaps, perhaps some examples interstate, that the appointments will only be from a group of candidates who are undoubtedly of the standard and have the capacity to do mm. the job. And within that group, that professional competence, there's um, uh, some scope for selection depending on the Perception as to the underlying value of the judge. But sorry, I've got one more thing no, to no, say. No, please. The, the, yeah. the final point to make is because we have security of tenure with the judiciary and they cannot be removed except for misbehaviour um, uh, until uh, 70, really, uh, um, the s- selection by the government doesn't matter because that security of tenure, then, quite apart from the professional state of mind of all lawyers, that security of tenure ensures that decisions are made effectively according to law. Um, there's some, always some scope for discretion in these things, but it's much less than people might think. That politicisation of, um, of, I guess, judges
1: in the States seems quite marked, you know, that um, you know, based on the political party, they'll appoint, you know, very strongly someone they prefer. What's it like in the South Australian landscape? Is it generally, a, you know, is it a you know, bipartisan approach to this? Or are there ever, um, mum, you know, murmurings from the other
2: side depending on who gets appointed? Yeah. I've just, um, just about finished reading a book called The Nine, I think it is, which is a book about Supreme Court judges in the United States. Now, they're not elected, it's relatively minor, Uh, um, inferior court judges who are elected in the States. Supreme Mm -hmm. Court um, in the United States is not. Um, And that is very partisan. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, there are Confirmation hearings, in, which have cost the nominations of quite a few judges because of their political affiliations, but in the United States, because they have um, the Bill of Rights and are making uh, human right type decisions on the validity of legislation, um, it is very divided, and the uh, views, according to this book, uh, which they hold and their differences of opinions are, are, are really strong. We don't have that sort of jurisdiction in the Supreme Court in this state and even in those states that have human rights charters that work, there there isn't that sort of work and that sort of um, level of controversy that you have in the United States. So um, the uh, differences of... There are really no differences of opinion that have their root causes in the government that selected the judges here. In fact, if you asked me and just about all other judges, we just would not know um, Mm. which government appointed which judge Mm. um, unless we went back and checked the date of appointment and which government (laughs) was in. So those, Mm. those points are just not an issue. Where there are issues, and this is a good thing, where there are differences, is over questions of legal policy. And these questions arise over... How do you construe a statute and to what extent do you read it down to preserve the liberty of the individual and to what extent do you um, uh, uh, allow it to have an adverse effect on the rights of an individual in order to achieve the social purpose the legislation wants? Do you sentence more towards the lower end or more towards the higher end? To what extent should an appeal court interfere with a judge's exercise of discretion or should we just let a thousand flowers blossom and judges have a fairly wide area of discretion? Mm. These are questions of legal um, policy about which judges do have differences Mm. and fairly consistent differences. Um, The important thing is, and uh, I know in this court, it is the position, uh, that those debates are very respectful Mm. and we recognise that it's not a question of who's right and who's wrong. It is a a professional difference of opinion or difference of professional opinion Um, and it really goes to the underlying values which people quite reasonably hold. What are the KPIs, the key performance indicators, for a Chief Justice... Do you have a job description? <laughs> yeah. um, there is no job description, but there's a big induction folder which one <laughs> chief justice passes on to the next. Um, what are the, the the KPIs? Essentially, are um, the um, expeditious and just resolution of cases. So, um, if we've got backlogs in cases, uh, that's not a good thing but judges don't have a lot of control over that. I'll say something about that in a minute. Uh, Reserve judgments is the thing, and how long we reserve our decision is the thing we have greatest control uh, over, but it's the thing that's hardest uh, to manage. And I myself have had a difficulty in getting judgments out as quickly as I would like them to get out, and as quickly as they should. So uh, managing our time on that is the the biggest um, challenge. Um, Having said that, the number of cases that actually go to judicial decision as a proportion of the number of actions instituted is really very small. So um, the problems, the complaints that uh, are made about justice being slow generally are not about a reserved judgment. But the great majority, because the great majority of cases never get there, it's um, the way in which we run cases, prepare for the trial, the way in which lawyers, the procedures which lawyers go through, the procedures which our rules require lawyers to go through, they are the things that can cause um, delay. Um, uh, And that's something that we constantly uh, look at in the first couple of years. Um, I chaired a committee comprising legal representatives of the profession and judges to try and cut through some of those. There were a couple of reforms that we got through. That work has now been um, passed on to the Standing Mm. Rules Committee, which the courts have, and that's sort of a work that's constantly in progress. But um, a lot of it is in the hands of the profession and litigants. And because we have an adversarial system where the judge isn't actively involved in bringing a case to its conclusion, um, there are limits to what we can do to hurry mm. things along. There are also
0: resourcing is a factor in terms of being able to create speed. How do you reconcile that given that one of your KPIs is to move things on quickly when um, clearly if uh, the government isn't resourcing the system as it should, then that you, there's almost a helpless helplessness.
2: Yeah, Um Uh, um, Most things uh, can be fixed by throwing money at them, but as governments with tight budgets always remind us, they'd rather not just throw money, but they'd rather find a clever solution as well. So I think you've got to do both. Mm. Uh, This court recently had an increase in its its numbers. Um, A judge that was only part-time here because. Uh, he was running as SACAT. Justice Parker is now full-time here. Um, We were quite stretched before that. I'm hoping that that appointment um, will allow us to operate more effectively. Um, uh, um, It'd be terrific to have yet another judge, but um, with Justice Parker becoming full-time, I'm fairly confident we'll be able to manage things. It's the district court and their criminal trial list which is the biggest problem, and they undoubtedly do need... Um, more judges to try and get through the criminal trial list. Um, it's important, I think, for the community for criminal matters to be dealt with uh, very quickly um, for a whole host of reasons.
0: There seems to be, and this is just my my comment, almost an unwillingness to, to resource the courts or the system. Is it a, to me, it almost seems like it's a bit of a PR issue. It's not necessarily a vote-getting or or popular thing to do to throw money at the legal system. The public perception necessarily, I've always felt there's a bit of a misunderstanding um, from the wider public about kind of the role that the system plays, unless you're actually in it, in court yourself. How do you see, I guess, the PR aspect of
2: this? You've hit on a number of important issues there with that. Um, First, uh, because of um, concerns about delay because of uh, controversy over levels of sentencing, um, courts um, do cop some public criticism. Um, we do whatever we can to explain that. Mm. I've been on radio. Um, we publish our sentencing uh, remarks so that people can actually see the full picture. Um uh, but one of the problems is that um, there's no one out there really whose job it is to defend the courts and judges can't defend their particular decisions and shouldn't. Uh, attorneys general once did. Um, they don't see that as their function now. Uh, the um, legal profession does, but they have a, you know, a image perception problem um, as well. Um, from when I first... Uh, took, uh, became Chief Justice, I um, took the view that uh, in, we should um, Judges can't be reactive to criticism of a particular decision. One, we can't really enter into the merits of the decision. But secondly, if, if all you're doing is reacting when there's a criticism, mm. uh, you're not really helping promote uh, what you do. So the position I've taken is that wherever possible we make a statement about something good that has happened, a change in our procedures that's made Mm. courts more accessible, um, uh, go out and explain what sentencing is about um, uh, when there is no controversy over a particular (laughs) sentence. Um, And I think uh, that has helped and, and will help over... Um, time. But come back to the government funding. And this isn't just a problem that, about courts, it's a problem about all the essential institutions of government. Um, governments don't get a lot of kudos out of just making sure that everything we expect to be there mm. is there and is properly funded. Uh, they get a headline out of a new initiative. Mm. So they'll come up with a new program and they will shower that with money which ultimately means that money, that the existing institutions who are doing the core work get, mm. uh, are starved of it mm. while a new idea is, is floated and, mm. and, and put out there. And that's the problem uh, that we have. There's mm. no... It's not just that courts aren't popular. I think people realise that courts need to be funded, that it would be terrific if there was more access to justice. Um, But that's not a headline. It's not easily demonstrable what a million dollars in the court budget will do as opposed to a million dollars for opening a new building that does something. Mm. Which is crazy,
1: isn't it? Because the central thing that underpins our culture and our business landscape, it's the thing, it's kind of the thing that, you know, separates us from other sort of cultures and countries around the world. So how do you describe the positive benefits of a rock-solid
2: judiciary and legal system. Yeah. I, I um, have often referred to the legal system as important superstructure from society, so not for society, not infrastructure like bridges and roads, but a, a superstructure over all of that that makes it work. Um, and it, it works like this. If your criminal laws aren't being administered effectively, then... Um, people aren't as confident about going about their lives, whether it's out in public, um, whether it's how they have to lock up every window and door, which really annoys me, (laughs) and I don't, (laughs) Um, you know, that that, that we're we're so worried. And a lot of that, unfortunately, is perception. It's it's not reality, you know. Um, So criminal laws have to work effectively for that, and they have to work effectively so that, um, in the end, we can reclaim people who've committed offences because we it's just far too expensive and a great loss if we constantly have to lock them up. Commercial laws um, are really important. If people uh, don't have confidence that a commercial dispute or a consumer transaction dispute can be resolved quickly and cost effectively, then uh, they will um, reduce their economic activity. They're less likely to enter into a business venture or a contract. They're less likely to buy an expensive um, item, or they'll be more cautious about it at least, um, if they don't have confidence that if it's not up to scratch or if the other party breaks their word, they won't get easy redress. So it is actually this superstructure that makes it all, um, all work. Discrimination in employment or social situations, mm. and employment issues, all of um, uh, um, that is constrained if the superstructure isn't there. It doesn't actually have to decide all these cases, mind you, but it's got to be there mm. uh, if there is a, a dispute. In terms of perceptions... Do you feel
0: that there's some misconceptions about incarceration Mm. from a public
2: perspective? Um, And what is the purpose of it? Yeah. (laughs) Um, First, can I just make it clear that judges, when they sentence, aren't engaging in the policy questions about the actual utility of imprisonment or the actual. Utility of a community corrections program and the relative merits of both, right? Uh, we're given certain options, um, but we have to sentence according to the statute and legal principle. And the legal principle, which we must accept, it's the premise on which we sentence, is that um, deterrence and in particular imprisonment does stop someone from offending again when they're released and does scare others from ever offending right? And so we've got to accept that now if you... And that that guides our sentences. But we have certain discretions in particular cases to give a community corrections type order instead of this deterrent sentence. Um, now, that's that's the law of sentencing. As to the public policy question, well, I think that there's... Un- uh, it's undoubtedly the case that we need to research more carefully whether or not that legal premise on which we proceed actually holds true, and I think you'll find that most lawyers uh, in the have worked in the criminal, law, prosecutors, or defendant, or for uh, prosecutors, or as defence counsel, and most judges. Um, would recognise that many of the people we are sentencing, we are sentencing either because they suffer mental illness, intellectual disability, drug dependence. Um, The uh, proportion that we sentence that you would just say are really bad and dangerous people is relatively small. So if you understand, once you realise that... Uh, then it seems fairly obvious that the, uh, if you can address those uh, medical and social uh, criminogenic factors, um, then that's likely to be a more effective solution uh, than just or only working on those premises which judges have to um, apply. And I I think there's a growing realisation of that. The uh, Correctional Services Minister, Peter Melinowskis, here has embarked on a number of initiatives that recognise that problem.
1: If you you could create a mechanism or a voice to really advocate then for the system and the judiciary, what
2: would that look like in a perfect world? Um, It would be... um, an institution uh, which um, encouraged uh, academic research and studies. It might do that in conjunction with the universities. Uh, Provided civic education into schools and the uh, community and uh, had access to senior, uh, say, former members of the judiciary and senior lawyers who um, could speak either in the media Or at other public places about the function of the law. It's an institution that could provide materials to parliamentarians, to people in uh, business uh, about the workings of the law. It was a slightly loaded question because
1: a couple of lads here, local lads from Adelaide, uh, we've got a bit of a punter's podcast and we've knocked on your door and asked if we can come and interview. So I see... This is a as a fantastic example of you know of us learning about mm-hmm. your world and 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 not just a, a fifteen second grab. You know we're gonna sp- we've spent some time with you. Um, as the outside world is just innovating and changing at a rapid speed, and we're in slightly older building here. How do you innovate? And I have read a few examples, but how do you innovate within the court system and and the judiciary? Um, to,
2: to improve this world? Yeah, well, um, the, the point you make about alternative ways of getting messages out is really important. Um, and overall, a, a, maybe it's just that I'm an optimist, but overall I'm really confident about um, uh, social media, the internet and what that provides. There are obvious examples where um, um, it, it doesn't advance the community. I mean, it, it is a problem that... Um, It's in the nature of social media that you you will, in the end, receive stuff that confirms your own biases. Yeah, co-chamber. That is a problem. Uh, But overall, the breadth of information that is available and immediately communicable um, to so many people is is a very good thing. So things like this podcast are our way. With the courts, uh, how do we go about it? uh, um, Decent buildings are important. Um, and we had some money in the last budget to try and improve our buildings. But uh, in a way, the government gave us, the courts, $20 million to get a new computer system as a co- because they weren't going to spend a lot of money uh, on a new court building. Um, and I'm not disappointed <laughs> about that. Um, we've signed the contract for the new... Um, electronic court management system, Uh, people are working on that now. Um, uh, That will, I'm hopeful that that, together with changes in the way lawyers practice, particularly with an influx of young lawyers now who are having to find work as best they can and use technology, uh, that we will expand access to justice just like it was expanded when lawyers set up suburban shopfront law practices years ago. Um, and I won't go into all the mm. reasons why it will, but I, uh, why I think it will, but I'm sure it will. Um, and it will allow courts um, a way of doing, uh, providing, uh, administering justice without necessarily having to have the building in it. Uh, we can have, as part of our electronic filing and management of cases, even online mediation. Um, and there's going to be a trial, I understand, of that in the Family Court, which is the Commonwealth jurisdiction, but here in South Australia. Um, But there are a number of models that we've looked at and uh, learnt about from overseas where that um, uh, happens. Um, Lawyers will be able to operate out of homes, small offices and do their work, communicate with their clients over the internet. The court proceedings will be accessible. Uh, We will be able to obtain reports and track the way cases are are handled and, and then effect changes to improve our procedures because of these um, systems. Um, uh, there, there is, of course, an explosion of data, um, but uh, a lot of that data from the police officer um, with the um, uh, camera on his or her laptop filming uh, witnesses give their statements or, in fact, filming an offence and then filing that directly to be used as real evidence to... Uh, in um, Building cases, architects, plans, reports—all of that data can now um, be filed, communicated to many, and used, and then analysed, searched instantly. So the um, speed and standard of justice can increase. If again, we've got to be clever about it. If we're not mm. clever, we'll be swamped by it. But um, all these things are, are, are possible conscious of your
0: time chief justice but i i am really interested in the decision making process for a judge uh, given that to be a judge is almost among the highest levels of decision making one could possibly be in. what is the process in terms of decision making and and is there any kind of room for gut feel um yes
2: um uh I think it was Dr Bray who actually said that when he first became a judge, he thought that there was no room for gut feeling in the sense of, oh, yeah, this is what I think is right, therefore I'll decide that way. Uh, but then the more he went, uh, continued as a judge, the more he realised um, that, that gut feel, that sense of justice, should guide you to where you go. Mm-hmm. But as with all things, this is just a question of balance. Ultimately... Um, as well as doing what f- um, accords with your sense of justice in a particular case, um, the law also has to be certain in its application. It can't be subjective. So I come back to what I said um, earlier: uh, we don't, um, we're not free to make a subjective decision in every case. We have to make it accordance in accordance with long-established principle. Um, We've got a small room to move in terms of uh, honing those principles or where there is a, a discretion. Uh, but there's no doubt that um, we'll have a sense of what is just and then we'll look to see whether the legal principle um, allows us to make a decision in accordance with that. Mm. I think usually it does, but sometimes it will not. What I think is, is very wrong is... Um, disregarding or straining that legal principle to try and get to your subjective view of what is right, because that creates massive uncertainty. And in my view, it's really quite arrogant. Now, so far I've been talking about applying the law to the facts. In terms of finding the facts, who we believe or not, uh, that's a, a different question. Um, in serious criminal trials. Often a jury does that, so that's fine. I think increasingly over time judges have become very wary of just making a um, bold assessment on the face of the demeanour of a witness as to whether to believe them or not. Mm. Most judges now realise the dangers in that and look for some sort of objective confirmation. Uh, But Mm. sometimes a a case will come down to that. Mm. My last question before
1: we have a uh, rapid fire, which is just our last minute or two where we just pepper some questions at you. My last question, I'm going to jump to the idea or the, the question that has South the South Australian Court set a national precedent um, in
2: any areas of note? Um, yeah, again, I'm not going to be able to spill off a particular authorities like some people might, but there's no doubt that under Dr... Um, Bray, there was uh, there were a number. There was um, an area of development of legal uh, principle, both in um, um, the laws of negligence, in um, uh, updating many of the criminal laws, both their common law basis and some statutory construction. Uh, then under um, uh, Chief Justice uh, King. Um, There was um, uh, South Australia was an acknowledged leader in the area of criminal law, the law of evidence and criminal um, uh, directions um, under uh, Chief Justice uh, Doyle uh, uh, in, um, again, the criminal law of um, evidence in uh, public law and in um, uh, statutory construction. Uh, I think South Australia... Um, held, uh, uh, was, um, uh, uh, its jurisprudence was leading jurisprudence. To kick off
0: rapid fire, your passions outside of law, I got a little inside
2: information that you don't mind swimming. Yeah, yeah, no, I I love swimming. I went for a swim (laughs) this morning. Um, I used to uh, live down at uh, Henley Beach and in the summer months would uh, often do Henley to Grange uh, Jetty uh, on the weekend. That was a lot of fun. I'm now in uh, pools. Um, I like it. I'm not. I'm not a great sportsman. People got to understand this. I'm. I'm not very athletic. But swimming, uh, it was terrific. I just plough through the water really. But it forces you to breathe regularly, and that's a form of meditation. So I've always found it a really mm. good way to start the day because. My mind ticks through what's going to happen or, or problems in the background that I have to grapple with. So, mm. swimming is terrific.
1: Have you ever been uh, bamboozled in an argument by your kids? Yes.
2: <laughs> uh, commonly, and uh, they, find, they, they take great uh, uh, delight in it. Yes. <laughs> what is the judicial <laughs> and, and process yeah. yeah. for the kids? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No, no, they particularly um, like to uh, uh, have a laugh at my own silliness sometimes. Yeah, the judicial process, oh, yeah, kids rule. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, now, I guess having learned your story, I'm not sure if there would be a life for you outside of the law, but if there was, what would you what would you be doing?
2: Oh, it's easy. There are only ever two other career options for me. It was either running a fruit and veg store <laughs> in the market or a coffee shop, probably the coffee shop. Beautiful. Uh, Another country's
1: judicial system that you may not agree with but you just love because it's
2: interesting. I'm I'm afraid I'm not enough of a comparative lawyer uh, to be able to uh, answer that question. Um, Perhaps I'm parochial, but I I think in many areas we get the balance right. I think in um, uh, England... um, They haven't dealt with the mix between the European concepts and human right concepts in particular and its effect on uh, public administrative law, common law, public administrative law very well. I think we've got the balance between um, legality and merits review uh, pretty much right here in Australia. Uh, I think the uh, politicisation of the highest court in the United States, Mm. as I adverted to earlier, uh, is not a good thing in terms of engendering respect for the law. So I'm I'm glad we don't have that here. Um, I the the other the jurisdiction that I like most is probably Canada because it has the greatest
1: similarities mm. to ours. The only reason I ask that question is one of the Netflix do- documentaries and the there was some Italian judges and I can't remember yeah. <laughs> it was the, it was the case of the the students and I can't, I can't I've lost the name at the moment, but the judge just seemed like this whole case and he just sort of gave a, a judgment that was completely gut feel, you know, like Amanda Knox <laughs> didn't respond in the right way yeah, when she yeah. was, you know, uh, perceived to be this murderer. Anyway, so I just wondered whether any of those might have stood out.
2: No, I can understand the attraction of <laughs>
0: Final one from me, is there a piece of music or a musician, um, or an album that sits at
2: the top of your list and what is it? Oh, you can't listen to it all the time, but it's probably Cohen's uh, live in London um, that I uh, like most. I but I've got very eclectic tastes, so it goes through to Dylan and Van Morrison. On the other hand, um, uh, um, the um, uh, I, I like listening to a lot of the uh, arias. Um, uh, you know, Carmen in uh, opera. Um, wow! Yeah, so it's yeah, quite,
1: quite, quite varied. Your communication is meticulous, and it feels to me you're always on top of it. Um, have there been has there been a moment where you've just flown off the handle <laughs> that you can remember, and it wasn't a constructed piece of communication? It was uh, emotional. Just thinking now, sir. No, no, I, I.
2: I uh, uh, there are probably a handful, uh, but they're all far too personal to talk. About. <laughs> yeah. Look, uh, Chief Justice, thank
1: you so much for giving us such um, such access to. It Feels like a real privilege, but I think it's also a great testament to opening up the doors and 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 giving us um, the ability to learn. Uh, and ask some stupid questions listen to your story and um, I know I'm going to be thinking a lot about I guess the things that we've discussed today so um, good luck and thank you very much
2: thank you for the opportunity
0: we hope you enjoyed our chat with the Honourable Chris Caracas Chief Justice of South Australia at Rooster Radio we talk to interesting people doing amazing things make sure you subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes if you like what we're doing Visit roosterradio.biz for the full episode list and to get in touch with us. Thanks for listening.